0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson.
1: And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 1065 FM.
0: This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us, and celebrating evidence-based policy.
1: We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started.
0: Here's a topic that'll get people all across the city of Louisville excited. Mathematics. Now, how many times have you heard people say, I'm just not good at mathematics. I'm just not a math person. I hear it quite a bit, and sometimes it'll be from people that I really admire, really respect for their intelligence, but they'll insist that they're just not very good at math. This is a big problem here in the United States. In the most recent international comparison for student mathematical achievement scores on standardized exams here in the United States, ranked us 38th out of 72 countries. Now, U.S. students performed a little bit better on the subjects of science and reading on these standardized exams. There, we ranked about 24th out of 72 countries, but our students are just not performing very well in mathematics In fact, if you look at just the 35 most wealthy countries in the world, countries like England, France, Germany, Poland, Spain, Norway, Japan, Australia, Chile, Israel, Mexico, out of those 35 wealthy countries, where do our students rank? 30th. 30 out of 35 countries. That's pretty abysmal. And it's not just U.S. students that are performing poorly on math exams. Even American adults report very high levels of math anxiety, math phobia. Americans just don't like to think quantitatively. This is important because we live in a very high technology economy now. The United States really depends a lot on having people who are good at math. Scientists, technologists, engineers, for instance... But being good at math is not just an economic issue. It's also a problem for the average citizen. They need to have good quantitative reasoning skills. Being able to think mathematically affects routine tasks like managing money, saving for retirement, shopping for the best prices, understanding how loans work, and lifestyle choices like what we're eating and how we exercise. All of this requires people who can think rationally and quantitatively. I think quantitative reasoning is also important for being a good citizen, evaluating what we hear from newscasters or read in the newspaper or on a website, assessing the accuracy of what a politician tells us. Now, experts will say that a lot of our mathematical abilities are affected by our attitudes about math. So if a person has the attitude of, I'm not a math person, I'm just not good at math, they're setting themselves up for failure from the very beginning. And when children hear that sort of statements from parents or other adults, it just legitimizes that attitude into the next generation. I just read this report in a journal called Frontiers in Education. It was published in April of 2018, and they start off their article discussing one of the biggest myths about math education. That myth is that people belong in one of two groups. Either you've got the people who are good at math, or you've got the people who are bad at math. If you're bad at math, you're just not going to ever be able to change that. That's a myth. There's been some research on the high level of plasticity that occurs in the human brain. For instance, there is this study in 2000 where they looked at the brains of London taxi drivers using MRI. And to make a long story short, what they basically found was that the longer a person drove a taxi, the more developed their posterior hippocampus was. Now, the posterior part of the hippocampus part of the brain is that part of the brain that's thought to be involved in spatial memory. So the taxi drivers that navigated the streets of London more had better capacity for spatial learning, and it resulted in development in this part of the brain. That shows that learning alters the anatomy of our brains, and it shows that we can learn. We can change, even when we're adults. These authors also point to several studies that show that children's attitude about the malleability of learning affects their actual learning. So children who think potential to learn is fixed, which means they're unmalleable, they end up performing poorly in school. Whereas children who believe in the growth model for learning, that the ability to learn gets better with practice, they end up doing better in school. It's a perfect example of a self-fulfilling prophecy, don't you think? Other education researchers have observed that if you can convince children of the growth model instead of the fixed model, they can actually become better achievers. Now, another myth that's discussed in this paper I'm reviewing today is that the process of learning math is all about procedures and memorization rather than ideas, concepts, and creativity. Certainly, I had to memorize my multiplication table when I was young. You know, 6 times 5 is 30, 6 times 6 is 36, 6 times 7 is 42, etc., etc., But there's another way to solve that kind of a problem. Just keep adding 6, so 30 plus 6 is 36, 36 plus 6 is 42, 42 plus 6 is 48, etc, etc. But there's justification for memorizing the multiplication table, but what about the other functions of math like addition, subtraction, division? I remember just learning the mechanics of how to add, subtract, and divide, rather than memorizing them, and then you just deal with whatever numbers you're faced with at the time. But I can see where children might get frustrated and not really try to learn all those skills. I can remember as a child learning how to add, and the teacher saying that using your fingers to add was wrong, that that was cheating. And when you think about it, I'm not sure using your fingers to work out an addition problem is that bad. Say you're faced with the problem of 5 plus 3. Well, you start off with the five fingers on one hand, and then you use the second hand and pull out the first finger, the second finger, the third finger. That adds up to eight fingers altogether. I'm not an education expert, but that doesn't seem like such a bad way to solve a problem. And it definitely doesn't involve memorizing. I had a friend tell me that one of her favorite early math teachers told the students that there were multiple ways to solve problems and that they could use any method they use as long as they got the right answer. And I think that's a good approach. It's certainly a way to encourage creativity. But anyway, if students think that math is all about memorizing, they tend to not be very good at math, whereas students who think math is a way of thinking, they tend to do a lot better at math. Another myth about mathematical education that's discussed in this article has to do with how long does it take a person to solve a mathematical problem? Some people think that if you're slow at solving a problem, that you're dumb. You just don't have command of the the material, but that's not the case. Sure, they might be really quick if they've memorized all the answers, or they only have one technique that they apply to all situations. But someone else who hasn't memorized everything, who methodically works out each mathematical problem step by step, that's a person who really has a command of the subject. The authors of this paper that I'm discussing tried an experiment to see if they could dispel these myths about math and to see what effect that might have on math performance. They identified a thousand different middle school students and divided them into two groups. One group took an online course that the researchers had developed about these myths about math, and the other half of the students didn't take this online course. And then at the end of the semester, all of the students were given the standard California Mathematic Exam that all Californian middle school students take. By the way, this research was done out of Stanford University in California. So this online course that half the middle school students take consisted of six different modules, each module taking about 20 minutes to complete and the modules included things like videos for the students to watch, some mathematical calculations to make, and opportunities for students to reflect and communicate with other students. Let me read you the key ideas that the researchers were trying to get across in this online course, and I'm quoting verbatim from the article. Number one, everyone can learn mathematics to high levels. Number two, mistakes challenge and struggle are the best times for brain growth? Number three, depth of thinking is more important than speed. Number four, mathematics is a creative and beautiful subject. Number five, good strategies for learning mathematics, and this included talking and drawing. And number six, mathematics is all around us in life, and math is important. And the four examples they gave showing how math is important in life was soccer, nature, juggling, and dance. So, hundreds of students took this online course, and then hundreds of students didn't, and they all took the same standardized exam at the end of the uh, semester. And what are the results? Drumroll, please! You guessed it, these middle school students who took this online course, just a total of two hours or so, They did significantly better in math. Their scores were higher, their understanding of math concepts and procedures was better. They did better across the board. They also surveyed the teachers of these students, and the teachers reported that the students who took the online course appeared to be participating more in classroom discussions, and that these online students stuck it out more when faced with difficult questions. Those students that didn't take the online course tended to give up. They just didn't stick it out. One thing that the teachers observed in this study was that those students who took the online course didn't differ from the control group for how hard they appeared to work. So all the students were trying. They were working at these problems, but those students that took the online course did a better job of it. They also polled the students themselves and found that those students who took the online course reported more positive attitudes about math. They reported that math was an interesting and creative process and that they had less fear of math than before. And in fact, these students who had taken the online course said that they found themselves seeking more challenging problems, which is really cool. I'll finish up by quoting Professor Joe Baller, who was the lead author of this study, And this is a quote from the press release from Stanford University. She says, There is a connection between students' mindsets and their learning outcomes. When they struggle in class, they think that means they don't have a math brain and they just give up. Dr. Bowler also says that many students hold damaging, fixed mindsets, believing their intelligence is unchangeable. But when there is a shift to a growth mindset and they believe their intelligence can be altered, their attitude to math changes and their achievement increases. Dr. Bowler also says, the online course changed students' ideas about mathematics and their futures in the subject. This is the first online class that has had such an impact. It led to students feeling more positive about math, more engaged during math class, and scoring significantly higher in mathematics assessments. So check it out. It's an article published in the April 2018 issue of Frontiers in Education. See you later.
1: I just want to go ahead and talk about a large study that just came out um, from England. This used data from the Health Survey for England. This is a cross-sectional survey that was taken um, between 2001 and 2013. And they got yearly data from about 9,000 English households. What they were looking at is what changed specifically um, health-wise surrounding the 2008 Great Recession. So they specifically used data on respondents above 16 years of age. Uh, They looked at socioeconomic characteristics of these individuals and then a wide range of health lifestyles and health conditions. After the 2008 Great Recession, they noticed the probability of being obese and severely obese increased by 4.1 and 2.4 percentage points respectively. Similarly, the probability of having diabetes was 1.5 percentage points higher after the recession. And most notably, the prevalence of mental health problems increased by 4% after the recession. They also noticed some other interesting trends during this time. Um, There was actually a decrease in the amount of fruit intake, smoking, and drinking from the recession. Uh, And these variations in health were more pronounced among the less educated and among women. So I kind of have some interesting thoughts on why this might be happening, because if you're having less income coming in, you're going to change a lot of aspects about your life. Uh, So people probably had to resort to eating cheaper food. I mean, you can think of fruit being delicious, but one of the most expensive things in the grocery store. Um, I also wonder how stress plays a role in this.
0: Yeah, I noticed that was one of the higher numbers that changed. Was it 4% more emotional problems?
1: Yeah, and so if you're stressed out financially, this is going to obviously have a large impact on your life. So we know that stress can cause a, a massive amount of um, health problems indirectly. And so this, is, I think, is, is, is basically what that's showing. We do know stress causes um, bad health incomes, and this may be specifically related to financial stress.
0: Yeah, boy, I have a story in my own family about that. My brother was an architect back in Arizona. He had his own company. And after the recession, he had, of course, building went way down, and he really struggled. I could tell he was under so much stress. And um, I blame the Great Recession for his doing so badly, health-wise.
1: Yeah, and if you're stressed out financially, you're likely going to have less sleep, and we know that sleep deprivation causes um, a lot of problem, a lot of health problems for individuals. So you have increased stress, um, increased sleep deprivation. So it makes sense that you would see a lot of other uh, health problems coming um, out because of this. You know, you're you may also be working more if you're not able to make um, ends meet by just a standard. 40-hour uh, work week job, you might be picking up an extra side job. So you're exhausted, you're sleep deprived, you're stressed.
0: Now, I wonder how did what did they compare after the great recession to? How did they like when they had they announced how many percent differences there were? It was compared to what?
1: So they were tracking 9,000 individuals between 2001 and 2013. So I think they looked at how Um, Those health, how they compared before uh, 2008 until after. And then uh, what I was curious to see if any of those started coming down, you know, in in towards the later end of the study.
0: Yeah, because you wonder, as we all age, we're more likely going to have some of those medical problems. and You wonder how they eliminated.
1: Yeah. Well, and then if we think about it, I mean, recessions are kind of a natural occurrence in the economy. Uh, they seem to have kind of this 10-year cycle. Not that everyone is, is as bad as, you know, the Great Recession um, or the Great Depression, but you're still going to see recessions occur. And so, you know, if we know that these are coming up, we might be better prepared to help, um, you know, these individuals with these health problems.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. How could the medical community help help prepare people for future economic crises like the, the one in 08.
1: Yeah, so this, you know, has impacts for how we consider national health care. Um, so as a nation, if, if we're going through a recession, we're obviously going to have a harder strain on the health care system because there's going to be more problems.
0: Yeah, I know I was under a lot more st- emotional stress after the Great Recession. Yeah, even people with jobs, just they're worried about their economic future, investments dropping
1: (laughs) I would say I was I was luckily to be shielded from that at the time I was I was 18 and just graduating college or high school and moving on to college so luckily I was still able to go to the university of my choice but you know perhaps I would have had more financial help from my parents had this not occurred yeah
0: it'd be interesting to see a parallel study because I think you said this was done in Great Britain be interesting to see what that same trend happened in the United States?
1: Yeah, I think we can maybe extrapolate and say that it did. It's hard. It's They definitely had this nice set of data that they were already started tracking all the way from 2001. And so sometimes that's what's hard about studies um, looking at before and after event, because you may not know the events coming. Um, and so you may not have that data readily available. I wonder if, if something does exist out there. They may be able to scour some patients' health informations and and look back at this retroactively and see.
0: Yeah, and since they have, um, in my own personal opinion, I think they have better health care for the average person in Great Britain than we have in the U.S., especially in 2008. It could have even been worse in the United States compared to there.
1: Oh, that's definitely a great point.
0: I remember, oh, every once in a while you hear a story of a free clinic like for dentists offering free dental work and families parking their SUVs in the parking lot 2 days before waiting and getting lined because they desperately need need dental care and they just can't afford to go without insurance. Hey, here's a scenario to put yourself into. It's Friday afternoon. You've got a busy week next week. So you're sitting with your calendar and your list of emails and phone messages and you're trying to plan the week. You have a lot to do. One of the things you need to do next week is to meet with three different people. And each one of these people needs to meet with you for about an hour. But your problem is that you have a whole bunch of other things to do too. So you've got to decide what's best. Is it better to meet all three of those people back-to-back on a single day Or is it better to meet one person on a Tuesday and one person on a Wednesday and one person on a Thursday or what have you? What do you think is better? Which one of those two options is the most efficient way to plan your schedule? Some marketing professors recently investigated this situation in a paper published in the Journal of Consumer Research in May of 2018. In fact, one of these marketing professors actually had this personal experience that instigated this study. Apparently, this professor worked in the evenings at home quite a bit, and she observed a difference between those evenings where she was working alone for the whole evening versus evenings where later a friend was going to come by and they were going to go out to a movie or a cocktail lounge or what have you. She noticed a difference in her ability to get worked on between those two evenings. She observed that those evenings where she had no appointments, she got a whole lot more office work done than those evenings where she did have an appointment later. On those evenings where she did have a visitor later in the night, she found herself just doing sundry tasks while waiting for her appointment. So she was just answering email and doing trivial things like that. Whereas if she didn't have an appointment that evening, she was able to do much more significant work that required more focus. And it wasn't because the friend consumed time and she had more time to devote to her important work when she didn't have friends. You're talking about the same period of time she was able to get more done when she didn't have this appointment later. It turns out that humans are pretty efficient when it comes to choosing tasks and managing their time We tend to pick projects that we can complete within a certain amount of time. If we don't have enough time to complete a particular project, we tend to not pick that project. We tend to fill up the time performing some other kind of tasks. So these researchers designed and carried out eight different experiments. They were using college students as the subject. So they designed and carried out eight different experiments to look at the effect of appointments on time management. They investigated behavior during bounded time, which is the time before an appointment or some sort of scheduled task, versus unbounded time, which is time not followed by an appointment or some scheduled task. So how efficient are people when they have bounded time, which means something important is coming later, versus unbounded time when you're a free agent and there's no big appointments later? The researchers also measured objective time versus subjective time. Objective time is literally the number of hours and minutes and seconds that we have ahead of us in a certain situation, whereas subjective time is how much time we think we have ahead of us. You know how time seems to go really quickly when you're doing something enjoyable, whereas if you're doing something that's drudgery, time seems to go really slow. That's subjective time. One of these eight experiments had to do with putting the subjects into situations where they did have an appointment an hour later. So they literally had 60 minutes of time to perform whatever tasks they had assigned to them. And so the subjects had 60 minutes of time, but the researchers asked them, considering that you have an appointment an hour, how much time do you really have to devote to this task? And the average was 50 minutes. And that's objective time. So they objectively thought that they had 50 minutes to perform tasks ahead of their appointment. I'd probably answer that myself. You know, you figure you need a few minutes to get warmed up and you might have to go to the restroom or what have you. 50 minutes objective time when you actually have 60 minutes. And that was 50 minutes regardless of whether it was bounded time or unbounded time. So whether they had an appointment later or not, they thought they could perform work for about 50 minutes out of the 60 minutes available to them. But then when they asked the subjects about their subjective time, how much time do they really think they're going to be able to devote to work in either a bounded time situation or an unbounded time situation, like somebody visiting or not, the average answer was 40 minutes. So the subjects knew that if they had a visitor coming later or some sort of appointment, they were going to lose 10 minutes. They would only be able to get about 40 minutes of work done. And they didn't lose those 10 minutes if they were in unbounded time, which means they did not have an appointment coming up. Of the eight different experiments that the researchers carried out, the one that I thought was most interesting was the one where they offered money to the subjects. So the subjects had an hour of free time, and they were told that if they could just devote 45 minutes to simple tasks during that hour, they would get paid $5. $5 for working 45 minutes, and that these subjects thought they had 50 minutes of objective time. So that would have been easy. Now, the subjects were offered $2.50 if they could only devote 30 minutes to that task, even though they had a full hour. So $5 for working 45 minutes, two fifty, half that amount if they worked 30 minutes. Sometimes they were in a bounded time situation where they had something to do after that free hour, and sometimes they were put in unbounded time situations, which means they were free after that hour. The results? Well, wouldn't you know it, the subjects that were in bounded time were significantly more likely to choose the 30-minute task and only get paid half as much. Even though they had plenty of time to carry out 45 minutes of the task, And when they knew something big was coming up after that hour, they just chose the 30 minutes. One of the observations they had in the course of these eight experiments was that subjects accomplished a whole lot more during unbounded time compared to bounded time. So they were much more efficient in getting work done during unbounded time when they had no appointments ahead of them. So the researchers conclude that when people have tasks or appointments looming ahead of them in the calendar, it makes them less productive. They're just not as efficient. You may have observed this in your own life, really. Think about those days before a major landmark event like your birthday or Christmas or Thanksgiving or New Year's Eve or the Kentucky Derby, whatever it is. You just don't work quite as efficiently when you've got this exciting event coming up ahead of you. Now, the authors speculate about one situation where the opposite effect might be occurring, and that's when the appointment ahead of us has something to do with the task we were performing at that time. So, in other words, if your boss says she's going to drop by the office at 4 o'clock that afternoon to pick up your final report, oh boy, you're going to work really efficiently in those hours before that 4 o'clock appointment. That makes sense. So that scenario I offered at the beginning of the story where you've got to meet with these three people next week for an hour each, do you schedule them all at the same day, you know, back to back, or do you schedule one per day? The answer is you should schedule them back to back, at least according to this research. Just stack all of your meetings together on the same day. That way you'll have a longer period of time to devote to your task and you'll be able to focus on it better the authors also have a recommendation in how we perceive time. Don't underestimate how much you can get done in the time you're allotted. They think that people are too negative. They're too hard on themselves about what they can actually accomplish during a certain period of time. You can really accomplish a lot if you put your heart into it. So I think this paper might actually help me become a little bit better at time management. And maybe you too.
1: As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science.
0: We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it.
1: Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us.
0: If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at (laughs) forwardradio.org.